0: Get IXL now and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
1: Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and I am your host, and your name is Listener, and that's what you do. You listen. Guys, what a podcast. What a life. Here we are again on a fucking Tuesday or whenever it is, you're listening to my voice. And listen, this podcast is really the highlight of my professional career, and, and I do some things. I got some nice gigs, you know, some gigs that uh, result in some nice scratch, as they say. I don't mean to brag, but I'm financially stable. Yeah. that's Listen, I can go to any mid-tier restaurant. I'm I'm talking an Applebee's, perhaps a Chili's, maybe even a TGI Friday's. Maybe Magic Johnson's TGI Friday's on La Tierra by the Los Angeles International Airport. But any of these places... Maybe a Cheesecake Factory. Perhaps a P.F. Chang's. Maybe I'm going to go exotic at a macaroni grill. I can eat at all these places and not even look at the prices. Can you believe that? I don't mean to brag and I don't want you to feel different than me, your host. But I can't hide it anymore. I'm different. I'm doing well. I have HBO and Showtime. Fuck. Fuck. I can't help it. (laughs) I'm just... Man, and it's because of you guys. I don't have epics or stars, but I'm working on it. And this podcast gets another 100, maybe 150,000 listeners. (sighs) It's going to be insane. I might have Disney Plus. I don't know. Dare to dream. Listen, guys, I have a secret for you, and I'm not proud of it, and I'm not happy to admit it. But my producer, Kevin, this is his last episode. And he's sitting right next to me not saying a word because he's so sweet and he doesn't he doesn't he's just wonderful and he doesn't want to always interact he just is like quietly there like a loving father you know just looking out for my my well-being and he's leaving me for greener pastures and I get it it was it was like how do you say it 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 was almost too good to be true that I had Kevin for this song you know what I mean it was like one of those relate it was like a camp relationship. You're like, yeah, this is going to be great through July and August, but you live in Tallahassee and I live in South Carolina and that's just too much of a commute and we're 16. We're not going to keep in touch. But the reality is what I just I would have been I, I would have been lost without him and I'm sad to see him go, but you know I'm going to continue to make him uncomfortable until he leaves. Kev, anything to say? <laughs> nope. It's been a pleasure working with you, Josh. Ah, oh, Kevin, you beauty. <laughs> truly has been. Oh, guys, you should, I don't, listen, Kevin, you want to give a shout out to your Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good on that. God, listen, you want to, ta- Kevin is from the Midwest. I'm not going to say where. You can guess. I'm sure you can hear it in his accent. He's, what are we talking, 5'11 and a half, six feet? Even six, I think. <sighs> And every inch of that six feet, let me tell you, the guy is beautiful to look at, has a beautiful, successful wife, just a wonderful, I mean, is the whole package. Listen, if Kevin runs for president one day, don't color me not surprised because it will make perfect sense because the guy has got all the goods, but I'm sad to see Kevin go. He's the best. And oh, well. You know, these things happen. Look, Kevin's leaving me. My father left me. It's, it's obviously just a, it's a pattern in my life. Maybe it's me. I got to look at it. Maybe it's me on today's show, Dylan Lowy, um, Dylan is is a friend of mine and an incredibly impressive person. He joined the Obama administration in 2012, serving as special assistant to President Obama and chief speechwriter to Vice President Biden in 2013. The National Journal named him one of the administration's top decision makers. I mean he you know is a, a new york times best selling ghostwriter has written for presidents presidential candidates prime ministers royalty all of it the guy is um Super incredible, and I actually met him through our mutual friend, Casey Neistat, and I felt really lucky to have him on the podcast. So as a quick, uh, I must qualify this very quickly, we did do this podcast a little over six weeks ago, so the political climate looked much different, so if we're a little bit behind... As far as like talking about candidates that have since dropped out of the current presidential election, forgive us. But, you know, I left it in because it had more to do with what we were saying about their candor or their their talking points and less to do about the fact that they were actually in the race. And um, yeah, Dylan uh, runs a speech writing firm called The Lead Pen, and you can check them out at theleadpen.com. And, you know, I think after you listen to this podcast, you might want them on your team. Guy's got a lot of skills. Oh, and one more qualifier, and I hate to do this, but I always, I don't know, I just feel compelled. I was recovering from food poisoning (laughs) um, through the whole weekend, and then on Monday morning, bright and early, we did this podcast. So I feel it. Maybe I'm being hypersensitive, and the beauty of this is that I'm fucking, you know, going to shine a light on it now. So what would normally perhaps go even unnoticed, I'm sure you'll keep an eye out for now. I felt a little slower than usual, not as on my game with Dylan as I would have liked to be. I think I was just sort of slowly coming back to life. So if that's why I, you know, perhaps didn't give you the normal comedy styling. <laughs> that you're used to on this podcast well blame the bad uh, the bad oysters i had i'm just kidding i didn't eat bad that's fucking disgust could you imagine food poisoning from bad oysters if you get food poisoning for bad oysters there should just be an option to kill yourself <laughs> like you just go you know what i know what the next 36 hours are gonna look like Let, just give me a pill I'm done. And, and the hospital goes, we hear you. Um, there's a room for you. What, do you want to call your family real quick? And then you just kind of, you're done. Anyway, enjoy Dylan Lowy. Dude, look at us. Look at us. This is great. <laughs> um, so I have to start this podcast with embarrassing you a little. I got to do it. Uh oh, <laughs> and I did this to Liz Allen, who I can I think can I say our friend, our friend. Liz I think Allen? you can
2: say that. Yes. Wow,
1: I'm re- I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed with myself. I did this to her when we started the pod, so I got to do it to you. Let's just let's just go down your LinkedIn for a second, <laughs> <laughs> just just for a hot minute. Um, a a master's in public policy from Harvard. That's right. Uh. Just a fun law degree from Columbia?
2: I wouldn't call it fun, but yeah, that one's right, too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Columbia? Okay, no big deal. Um, Dylan Lowy is a former White House speechwriter and a New York Times bestselling ghostwriter. He's written for presidents and presidential candidates, prime ministers and royalty, the CEOs of Fortune 50 companies, the leaders of global foundations, and some of the world's most notable athletes and entertainers. Dylan This feels like a Jewish mother's dream.
2: (laughs) I do. I feel like I should print that and frame it for my grandmother or something.
1: I mean, what? What stats, my friend?
2: it's been uh, it's been uh, quite a ride yeah it's uh, it's a, it's an amazing thing I think about uh, being a speechwriter is that um, if you can do it and you can get in there um, all of a sudden you find yourself sitting across from people who are far more important than you um, on scales you can't even imagine uh, talking to them very intimately about uh, their values their work the arguments they want to make um, all those kinds of things and then you know it's your job to go back and and turn what they said into something that, uh, that speaks, and you know, in some cases for me, that's been speeches. Um, I've written a number of books um, in collaboration with folks, um, and yeah, it's been
1: uh, it's been a great ride. Can you track a certain? It sounds douchey, but like a certain level of excellence or drive in your life from early on. That you know, when you when you think about the things that you've accomplished and the places that you've studied, like it. It just is, it seems like a natural progression with someone with your credentials to be in the place that you are. It, you know, it's not like he went to two years of Phoenix College online and then all of a sudden he was writing for Biden. Like, this is what people who do what you've done do. Can you have you always sort of been on this upward sort of trajectory? Uh,
2: you know, I, t- I guess to some degree, yes, I, I have. Um, I always. Um, knew I wanted to do something big, mm. um, and I think, you know, I, I was always good at school, um, but there's this question you ask yourself along the way. It's like, how good could I be? You know, like I have this fantasy in my mind, you know, these dreams that like maybe one day I could work in the White House one day, but like, is that really possible or not? Um, and then, you know, it's like the first step along that journey, I got into Harvard to get a master's degree, um, which… Felt like, oh, okay, I can maybe I can play in that level, right? Um, but all along the way, it's sort of a question like, can, can, am I, you know, have I maxed out what my skill set can do, or can I push further? Um, and I don't think you ever really know the answer to that question. Um, and certainly, in some aspects of the work I've done, I've definitely hit my 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 summit, my <laughs> personal summit. Um, but I've been very lucky that in other ways, um, the work that I have done has made me better at the work that I do. Uh, and so over time, um, I've been able to to make my way up there. And look, I think one of the things that happens, um, fair or not, is that some of these credentials that you get um, are overvalued mm. in the world. And so, uh, you know, I have a law degree from Columbia. I, I've never – I never took the bar. I've never practiced law. Um, but it's this little calling card that says, okay, this guy's smart. We, may, You know, maybe we should – Take a closer look. Um, And that kind of thing over time really can change um, the course of a trajectory. I mean, I think you can really get a lot of lift from um, some of those early uh, things. And then, of course, for me, like it culminated in. Um, getting a job working as Joe Biden's chief speechwriter. And, you know, that's a job I left in 2013, but it will always be the coolest thing I ever did. And it will always be the way I identify myself. And it will always be the way that I secretly hope that people are thinking about me when they hear my name. And, you know, and that has opened lots of doors. It's a lot easier, um, you know, to sit down with the CEO of a Fortune 50 company or, uh, a former prime minister of, a, of another country to do work with them if you can say, I used to work in the White House. Oh, um, yeah. And so a lot of it just builds in that way. Um, and the barriers get lower and lower um, the further along you go.
1: Was there ever a moment at like you're like sixteen in tenth grade or eleventh grade, and like a girl rejects you, and in the back of your head you go, "One day, I am going to work at the White House." <laughs> you just wait and see Donna or Samantha. I don't know her name. <laughs> Was there just like a little bit of that, like a small awareness, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck shit up.
2: Uh, I there was certainly a hope that I would, I would succeed in my career. I think when I was 16, it didn't occur to me that that might make me a more eligible bachelor (laughs) fair, you know? So, yeah. So I, you know, I think in that context, it was just like, all right, well, I'm a short Jew. I guess that's how it goes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, I interviewed, uh, my friend Safi Bacall, who's a physicist out of Harvard and, you know, wrote this book, Loon Shots, really brilliant guy and i asked him about sort of the moniker and and the pedigree of harvard and what what's what is that like being able to say that and he's like you know being a, sort of a career academic he's like i would question whether you could get just as good of an education at like you know a a great school like ucla or something that isn't so obsessed with the, you know, securing funding and where the professors are more worried about, you know, uh, making a name for themselves and more obsessed with like teaching their students. He's like, I think, you know, inevitably, if you want to learn, it's pretty much a level playing field, whether you're at the highest stratosphere of college or something mid-level. Would you echo that?
2: I completely agree with that. Yeah. I I mean, look, I went to UCLA for undergrad, which is obviously a really good school. Mm -hmm. It's on a different level than Harvard. I can't, tell you that there was really any meaningful difference between the quality of education I got at other place. You know, I think the things that go into ranking a school um, are often divorced from the basic work of educating students. And so, you know, you can have a phenomenal professor at Long Beach State, and you can have a terrible professor at Yale yeah, um, and there are tremendous professors at Long Beach State, and there are horrible professors at Yale um, and so Nine yeah, men. I think the quality of the education is is um, probably pretty level across the board um, with maybe some pockets of exceptions in terms of like, you know, if you're going to the sciences, you might want to be at a research university that had a lot of resources to go into that so that you could learn more, you know, in the lab and those kinds of things. But, but beyond that, it's like the pedigree is, is, again, it's a bit, a bit overvalued. I didn't necessarily get a better education at Harvard than I otherwise would have gotten. The fact that I have a master's from there, as opposed to UCLA, doesn't actually make me more qualified to do anything. But, uh, but it it did open some doors for me. Sure, does sound good. It does sound good.
1: I can and I I can imagine a detriment or one of the negatives about Harvard is that there are more people walking around who are like self important, impressed with themselves there than perhaps a master's program at UCLA.
2: It's a good thing to learn about because yeah. especially if you're going into politics, like Washington is literally filled to the brim with self important people, myself included. Sure. Um, and so yeah, it's it's good to get used to people thinking that they are you know amazing and the greatest gift that there was. Uh, and just, you know, learning how to navigate that kind of world.
1: So where let's track it. So you get your master's and you go to Columbia and, and you graduate and then where, where does the leap happen to get to go to the white house?
2: So I, uh, while I was in grad school, I had gone, um, and worked on a congressional campaign. I managed a congressional campaign in Texas. We lost. Um, but that was the first time I ever wrote a speech. Um, I No one in my family had ever worked in politics. I didn't really know anything about, um, you know, how that worked or how you get those jobs. Uh, and then the West Wing came on television. And so for the first time, I learned what a speechwriter was and that these were actually jobs you could have. Um, and that was um, invigorating, But also still a little confusing to me, like, how do you do that? And I think I went to law school in part because I didn't know how to go into politics, but I knew that there were lots of people with law degrees in Washington, so maybe that was the right approach. Mm. Um, Also, during uh, grad school, I started writing um, for the Huffington Post back when that was a thing you did. Um, And I got a lot of pickup in what I was saying. People liked my writing a lot. They liked the arguments I was making. Um, I ended up getting a book deal out of it. Uh, And all of a sudden it was, I could see a path to being a writer if I wanted to. But I also knew from, uh, you know, my love of politics that there was something special about, you know, instead of turning toward journalism, turning towards speech writing. Um, And and for me, what it was was that there's, being a speechwriter gets you into the room way earlier in your career than most other jobs. Yeah. There were lots of times when I was in the White House where the only people in the room, we were, you know, in in Joe Biden's West Wing office, and it was him, and it was his chief of staff who was 30 years my senior. It was his two senior counselors, and it was me. And I was 29. Yeah. And the only reason I was in there is because I was the writer and that what was getting articulated in, in that meeting would need to be part of the speech. But- that was just such an exciting idea to me that if I could use my writing skills in politics, I could get in there early.
1: Is there, I want to ask you, is there, a, you know, you, you see people like you and Liz and Favreau and Love It, like these young, incredibly intelligent, but like kind of 30 something, dare I say, millennials. Like, is that, has that always been the case that the speech writers are young, smart,
2: I think it has often been the case. Mm. Um, I don't know that it's uh, exclusively been that. Um, and I think, frankly, I think it's a function of what government pays. Um, and, you know, these these tend to be jobs where once you've done it for a couple of years, or for a presidential term, whatever it is, um, your next job is likely not to be as a government speechwriter, writer. Um, it may be, you know, like for me going into the private sector and, and writing speeches there, uh, it might be moving into a different role in communications. You know, there are some people who are speechwriters who go on to, uh, you know, manage campaigns, become communications directors, those kinds of things. And so there's often not a lot of people with the skill set to write speeches who are um available for that next class of speechwriters coming in. And so there's an opening for people who can write well.
1: Right.
2: Um and you know and so seeing that as a possibility and you know in Faber's great example in, in 2004 he was I think he was 22 when he became a speechwriter to John Kerry. Um and that was certainly inspiring to me. I was uh you know I was 20 in 2004 and it felt like oh okay I can see This is a job that even a 20 something could get if I'm good enough.
1: But how, how so in the respect of, you think of, I think about myself and I can only, I don't mean to project at 22. And listen, I lived a life. I I was on Nickelodeon. I don't mean to brag. Okay. But I was out there experiencing shit. I didn't know shit. I didn't know anything. So what is a really smart 22 year old offering a 50, 60 something politician?
2: I think the answer is just how to say the thing they want to say mm. well. Mm. Um, you know, There's there are certain circumstances as a speechwriter where you're playing a much bigger role than just the writer. You're shaping the ideas and the arguments and, you know, potentially even shaping the policies that are going to be announced. But that's not really how it works at the highest levels. At the highest levels, you are the person who can take um, what everyone else is saying and make it sound pretty. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not like, you know, when I was in the White House, so I was 29 when I started and it it wasn't like I was sitting there deciding what the vice president should say on my own. We had a policy team that would come to me and say, here are the policies we're announcing in the speech. Here are write-ups about how the policies work, read them, digest them and figure out how to explain them to voters. Um, You know, there were lots of people who were more senior than me with more experience, more wisdom, more depth, who were putting that kind of stuff into the speech. And of course, once that was done, it was just the first draft. That's what I was then handing to the vice president. And then we would work on that speech. Sometimes we would do 15 drafts of the speech before it would go in. So a lot of what it is, is it's finding the right words. It's managing that writing process itself. Um, And that doesn't necessarily take Um, a depth of wisdom. It does take a fluency in certain topics. You've got to be able to read a fairly dense policy report, get the salient details and know how you would explain that to your friend. Uh, But ultimately that is what the job is. Like how can you take something very complicated and boring and make it interesting and engaging and easy to understand for the people who you need to have understand it?
1: And is there a weird, I would imagine there's some version of a balance that comes in when you have a career politician in their fifties and sixties, who even the best of them, they've become, they've relied on their ability in which to convey a message. And I would imagine many of them feel like, you know, I I can talk a little longer if I want to, I can, I can bloviate. as long as I need to, because, you know, I've got the goods and some young whippersnapper comes in and is like, let's fucking economize this thing. Like, is that kind of the balance? It
2: it can, that is the balance. I think in some cases, I mean, look, when I, um, when I started with Uh, the vice president, you know, he'd been working in politics for longer than I had been alive. Sure. Um, And I I remember I I turned 29 on my first trip with him and he was sure to remind me that when he was 29, like it was all well and good that I was a white house speechwriter at 29. When he was 29, he had gotten elected to the United States Senate. And you know, so, so you, you get some perspective for sure.
1: No need to brag (laughs) (laughs) Joe.
2: And I think, you know, the biggest challenge as a speechwriter, but I think it's the most important thing, and I and I try to teach this to people who are coming into the field, is that it's not your speech. Yes. You might be writing it. You might have come up with a turn of phrase that you love, but it's not yours. It's theirs. And you are the conduit for them. In some cases, you're like literally just the scribe as they they speak extemporaneously in a meeting and you're just trying to catch what they're saying as quickly as possible. Um, and so it can really vary the, the the kind of work. Sometimes you feel like, Um, All you are is a a scribe, and sometimes you feel like you are building the structure of a really important argument. Um, But either way, it's theirs, and they've got a way of thinking that you're trying to capture, a way of speaking that you're trying to capture. The the way I tend to think about it is that if they had time, they would be doing this themselves. Mm. What I am stepping in to do is try to make it so that though they don't have time, what they're getting – is the product that they imagine they would get if they did have time to do it themselves.
1: And when do you when do you feel comfortable enough to at least fight for a specific line or a piece where you feel if inevitably the vice president doesn't want to say it of course you you bow to that but at least let me give this one more push because I think it's it's really important.
2: I think you have to obviously learn to pick your battles. Mm. Um I think that there can be times when what you want in the speech that's about to get cut is a really fun soundbite that you're proud of. Uh. And maybe that is worth fighting for, but maybe it's just that you're really proud of the way it sounds and it's not that necessary. Um, but one of the pieces of advice that I got from um, Shayla Murray, who was the communications director from, for Joe Biden when I was working there, um, when I first got started, was that I should push back on him, that he would respect me more if I did. And, uh, you know, that's a really scary thing the first time you walk into uh, the vice president's Western Wing office uh, to tell him that you don't agree with him on something or to push back. Um, but he created an environment where, um, you know, he was certainly – happy to push back hard on my pushback, but he created an environment where that was welcome. And so that I think is a really important dynamic to have. And it's something that I try to establish on the front end with anybody that I'm working with, um, that at the end of the day, like we will do whatever it is they want to do. But along the way, I need to be able to give them the feedback that they need just to know that from my perspective, from a best practices perspective, th- there's a better way to do this. And here's what I would suggest. If you, if you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. But I've, I need to be in a position to, to give them that value by telling them that I think there may be a better way.
1: Right. One more question I wanted to ask you about that. So where when does your first pushback come? Is it day one? Is it week one, month one?
2: I think it was my very first speech prep with him. Wow. Um, Which speech was that? uh, You know, it was a speech about bringing manufacturing back. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't remember the details beyond that. Um, But there was a particular line, and again, I can't remember the details exactly, that I thought um, was useful because it was going to set up this litany of arguments that could be made. And he had cut it without – just sort of quickly as we were going through moving on to something else. And so I I stopped him to say, you know, sir, I think – Actually, we might want to reconsider that line. I think it it could be very useful. I think it creates um, some momentum in that part of the speech. Yes. Um, and he disagreed, and that was the end of it. But it was, it was sort of a moment of truth for me. Like, could I actually do that? If that's part of the job, let me show that I can. Um, and uh, it was scary as hell.
1: <laughs> oh, man. So what's it like, your first sort of meeting with the vice president, and then how soon after that do you meet – you know the man, the POTUS. Uh,
2: so my first meeting with a vice president was uh, an interview for the job. Um, I had been working in a firm, a speechwriting firm called West Wing Writers, and uh, one of the partners of that firm, Jeff Nussbaum, had been uh, a writer for Biden in the 2008 campaign. And when uh, Biden's chief speechwriter left um, at the beginning of 2012. Uh, His communications director called Jeff and said, who do you know? And Jeff was nice enough to put my name forward along with a couple of others. Uh, I took a writing test, which I guess I did well on. I then met with um, uh, the chief of staff and the communications director. And like three days later, I was going to the White House to have a West Wing office meeting with – uh, the vice president, which was just terrifying. And I remember I sat down on the couch in there after shaking hands with him. Um, we started to talk. And by we, I mean he started to talk. And then he got interrupted because the ambassador to Ireland was on the phone, I think. And I just remember thinking, that is so cool that this meeting is being interrupted because the vice president is talking to an ambassador right now.
1: Oh my God.
2: Um, and then he sat down, and I think. We probably, it was probably a 20 minute meeting. It felt like it was maybe five, seven hours, maybe five, seven days. It was just so intense how slowly it was going in my mind. Um, And I said almost nothing. In fact, about three quarters of the way through, um, he says to me, by the way, you got the job. And then just kept talking. And so when it was over, you know, it's like you don't want to keep selling if you don't have to, but also I had not said anything. Yes. So I just sort of said something about how I agreed with his speech writing philosophy and I was very excited about it. And then I got up and left and that was it. I had a job, it was. It happened. And and, and of course the next stage is that the FBI um, has you fill out all these forms and you have to go through a, um, a security process to actually formally be offered the job. Um, but about a month after that, I was starting my first day at the white house.
1: And were they talking to kids at your Hebrew school at your, on your little league team? Oh my God. Dylan is Dylan. A good guy. Has he ever talked about, you know, putting a firework in a cat?
2: Everybody. I'm sure. They talk to everybody and you, you don't always find out. So you give them basically a document that has every place you've ever lived, every landlord you've ever had, every um, foreign national you've ever been in contact with. um, Uh, you list people who know you, you list all these people, right? And and then they reach out to those people and they ask them for names of people who know you. Yes. And so you don't actually find out until later who was talked to. But like I, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, at my parents' house and their neighbors uh, were out in the driveway and I said hello to them. And they asked me if I had taken a job at the FBI. And I said, no, I, I haven't. Why? They said, oh, a couple of years ago, uh, some FBI agents came to our door asking about you. (laughs) What
1: a trip. Such a trip. Now, not saying you, let's let's pick a completely high, let's say it's me, right? So I want to go work for the White House. Now, I I don't have a record. I got no, I don't even have a misdemeanor. But I've done some drugs. (laughs) I've definitely like, I think that's about it. But like. I, is there, I guess you don't quite know exactly like what would disqualify you. Obviously, there's the obvious things, but if they were like, oh, Josh, you know, smoked some crack in 2014, like, would they be like, perhaps we shouldn't be letting him near the vice president? I think.
2: I think one thing that is worth keeping in mind is that what the FBI is providing to the White House is a recommendation. Mm. And so ultimately, it's at the White House's discretion whether or not they're going to accept that recommendation. I think in the Trump administration, we've seen some examples um, of people who um, were given high security clearances despite a lot of um, red flags uh, and recommendations against it from the FBI. Um, And so to some degree, I think it depends— how indispensable you are going to be to the administration you're joining. You know, I think if you were coming in as the next president's communications director and you smoked crack in 2014, I think that would be okay. Because at the end of the day, that incoming president wants you as the communications director. Yeah. And it's going to be at their discretion. Um, The key thing is to be totally and completely honest because the – Um, One of the things that the FBI is concerned about is people in positions of power being vulnerable to blackmail. So if you did a ton of drugs and you lie to the FBI about it, then... You know, theoretically, a Russian agent could come to you and say, "We're going to reveal all of this to the FBI, and you're going to lose your job unless you pass us some secret documents." Yes, and so that's, I think, the thing that matters most is this person being honest. Do they have secrets that they are that that could be used um, uh, to compromise them? Uh, and I, I suspect, if not,
1: you're in the clear. Which candidate do you think would be cool with my drug use? Because I'm thinking Yang Yang Gang would be fine with my former drug use.
2: I think I think Yang <laughs> Gang would be very
1: pleased. I think they would they would be totally accepting. <laughs> so okay, so you have the interview with the VP, and then when how soon after do you meet Obama?
2: Uh, so I only met Obama um, a couple of times in my entire tenure at the White House. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the first time, uh, I don't even know that you can call it meeting him, um, but I was standing in the, uh, in the hallway outside of the vice president's office waiting for him to finish a meeting so I could go in. And I look up, and down the hall, um, President Obama's walking. And he's got an apple in his hand because there was a bowl of apples in the Oval Office. And as he walks by me, he takes a bite of the apple, and he gives me a little chin nod, and he says, Sup? And wow. walks on. It's like you are the coolest person.
1: Oh, oh my, my god! <laughs> god, first of all, that he had he he was courageous enough to take an apple from the dish in the Oval Office could have been fake. You don't know.
2: There you go. That's where they yeah, would keep that's fake boldness apples, right there.
1: God, the man just continues to impress. Yeah,
2: yeah. He was just so cool. Um, and then there was one other time when um, I was backstage with. Um, at a joint event with the vice president and the president during the 2012 campaign. And those were rare. Um, Usually, you know, the vice president would go off to one state and the president would go off to another so you could hit all the bases. Uh, But this was the day after the convention and we were all in New Hampshire together. And the vice president um, spoke and introduced the governor who then introduced the president. And so as it happened, I was standing back there and all of a sudden everyone was gone except for... Uh, President Obama, me, and one other person, um, and he struck up a little conversation with us about um, about uh, Joe Biden staying on the teleprompter uh, because it was like we it was just like a three or four minute speech, and he just got up there and like read it straight from the teleprompter, got it done.
1: Uh, Which can, was was that a bit of a rarity for I, Uncle Joe?
2: If it was definitely a rarity with domestic speeches, I think with foreign policy speeches, he was you know obviously had a ton of experience in foreign policy and knew. Um, the power and potential damage of a wrong word. Um, and so he would hew much more closely to the script. Um, but yeah, very often with, with the vice president, um, you know, we would we would spend a week working on a speech and say it was 2,000 words. And he would definitely read all 2,000 words. He would just add another, I don't know, one to 3,000 words on top of that. Um, and
1: what's that like as
2: a speech writer watching that? You know, it's scary. Um, it's less scary if they are not on a teleprompter because, you know, I mean, Joe Biden spent a lot of time, you know, most senators don't have teleprompters. And so you get used to just sort of talking off the cuff and finding your way. Mm. Um, When there's a teleprompter, you know, the real question when they come off the script is where are you going to get them to land back in the teleprompter so that it's clear? Yeah. And so there would be this process that would happen um, where we would arrive at the event and odds were I had a new speech in hand and I'd go running to the teleprompter operator at the same time that the vice president was making his way into the stage to give him the new speech. And then I would say to them, don't worry. I'm going to be here the whole time. I'm going to be standing right behind you. Just follow along with him. And if he comes off the prompter, just stop and I'll tell you what to do.
1: That's so interesting because you would imagine that for some, for a role as important as this, because as we know, A teleprompter operator, it's a very special skill and it's not easy.
2: It is not easy at all.
1: So you were kind of that de facto, like you were the one hovering behind every, you know, a speech or a a teleprompter operator in Tulsa being like, keep your hand on the dial and I'll tell you when to move it. More
2: or less, yeah. yeah. And, you know, eventually, you know, I would, I knew the speech so well and I knew the vice president so well. So if he came off the script to tell a story, I knew what story he was telling. I knew it was going to end. And I would know, okay, let's skip the next paragraph because that will land really nicely if we skip it. You know, so those are the kinds of things I had to know. But it was a, it was a high wire act. It was, you know, very stressful. Um, and, you know, there was one time I remember where, Um, Toward the end of the speech, the vice president was going to tell people in Iowa that they should go to a website. I think it was got to register or register to vote.org or something like that. And when the teleprompter got to the URL, something happened and it reset the prompter. And so the vice president was supposed to say, go to and then say the URL and then it froze. And so he's up there and he says, go to your friends and go to your family and go to the people you work with. And he's just, you know, stalling. And I like push the teleprompter operator out of the way and sit down and live type the ending to him.
1: Jesus.
2: Which was terrifying. Uh, he came off the stage and I wasn't sure if he was going to be mad or not. And he came over and he high-fived me and said, that's the most
1: fun I had in weeks. Sirkin's going to steal that storyline <laughs> for sure. <laughs> what, um, Conversely, does the VP ever walk off the stage and maybe it was a an improvisation that didn't go quite right, where he kind of shakes his head and goes, ugh.
2: You know, he was always, I thought, quite good at moving on. Hmm. Whether it was a great speech or an average speech, whether he felt like the event was, was useful or not. Um, I think, you know, part of the job requires a lot of compartmentalization. It's you're balancing so many things at any given time. And I think you have to get to a place where um, the moment you're done, you've moved on. Uh, And he was always excellent at that.
1: So you worked at the White House and and granted you were there uh, after 2012 when we didn't have the House and the Senate. But – or we didn't have the House and the Senate after 2014? We still had the
2: Senate. I started there in March of 2012, and we still had the Senate. We lost the Senate in 2014.
1: So, you know, you you wrote a book talking about, like, what it looked like in 2008, right, for it to be blue across the board. And it was kind of – I mean, for, for a Democrat, like, this weirdly idyllic time of, like, oh, my God, so much is possible – and here we are today not too much you know not too much after that and it looks quite different what what goes through your mind when you sort of look at the time then and and our time now is it does it blow your mind on a daily basis
2: it is i mean i think if i let it blow my mind on a daily basis i'd be in a fetal position at all times yeah. i think we've all try to find those of us privileged enough to be able to do it some degree of numbness to it. Um, uh, But it's, it is, it it is stunning to me. Um, And I think one of the lessons that I've taken just for myself is um, I, I always felt quite confident that I could look at what was happening in politics and project forward what would happen. Uh, and so in 2010, my, my first book, I got this book deal. I write this book about how Democrats can hold on to the, um, to the federal government, f- to the Congress and to the White House for a generation. Mm. And it comes out in September in 2010. And two months later, we lose the House, which was not great for sales. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, so, you know, you can be deeply wrong about these things. And it was very easy for me to look at the coalition that Obama had put together – and the decisiveness of his victory in 08 and feel like what we were seeing was a permanent sea change. Mm. I didn't consider a a range of things that have since become quite clear to me needed to be considered chief among them, um, racial animosity in this country and the kind of racial backlash that we would get um, to an Obama presidency. Um, And, you know, and so here we are and it is, um, I think especially frightening if you've been in the White House. And granted, like, my job in the scheme of things was not that important of a job in the White House. There were people in there doing much bigger things than me. Um, But I was in proximity to them. I saw what they were doing. And I get what needs to be done on a daily basis at every level of government to make this thing operate um, the way that we needed to. And so it's somewhat terrifying to me to imagine – how many of those things that we need on a daily basis are just not happening anymore. And what those consequences are going to be, I think um, whatever they are, they're going to last um, far longer than the Trump presidency, whether that is a one-term or two-term presidency.
1: Is there, I, I don't know, it, it might to a certain degree be a false equivalency, but when you look at the the way, the the swing between what was our first a, a, a person like President Obama, our first African American president, like blazed a trail for generations. And then you have Donald Trump, who was just, who no, even self admittedly, almost didn't think he had a chance. And yet, if you look in a granular way um, at the patterns of sort of the change of power over the years, it does kind of go like this, right? Like, Democrat, half blue, all blue, all red, half red, red, blue, blue, red. I mean, this is kind of, if we implanted this and we took the names out, but we put this into the mid-1900s, it would look like any other political pattern to a certain degree. Am am I wrong?
2: Yeah, look, I think, you know, over my lifetime, there's only been one period of time where a party held the White House for more than eight years in a row, and that was um, Reagan into Bush Sr. Um, And since then, it has been – Uh, two terms with a pretty big swing of a pendulum to the party. And I think what's happening is that both parties have changed so much over time that um, what used to be a a sort of a more natural ebb and flow between parties now feels like it's an ebb and flow um, across like deeply different and divided ideologies. Um, And so it's, it's, I think, really, um, really deeply apparent Um, in a way that maybe it wasn't in previous um, eras. Um, But I think at the same time, there are lessons that we are learning from the Trump era that are really important. But I think it's also worth remembering that we were a handful of votes away from telling a totally different story about this country. You know, if if Hillary Clinton had won, if, if, you know, 50,000 more people in Wisconsin and and Pennsylvania and Michigan had showed up to vote and she had won. Um, it would have been close in a, from an electoral college perspective, but we would have said, look, she won by 3 million votes Yeah, and this is decisive. And this is, um, you know, she's the heir to the Obama legacy. And here we are, you know, for the, for the only the second time in my lifetime extending a democratic reign in the white house beyond eight years, we were so close to it. And so, um, though I think that there are critical lessons to learn, I think we just also just need to remember that we are, we are still on this precipice between um, two vastly different futures.
1: You know, Bill Maher uh, was on, I think he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and, and he said something I thought was so smart. He said, the, the chief um, mistake we make in the questions we ask during a debate is, what would you do? He's like, that's the question of a king. What would you do? He's like, the real question should be, what can you get through and how? What can you get past uh, good old Mitch? Like, what can you actually get past instead of what would you do? Because we can all talk about that. But let's talk about the realities of what's actually going to change if you're in office.
2: I I think there's a lot of merit in that. But I would push back a little Mm. because I do think part of the job of leadership is to point people in a direction. And so it may not be the case that Elizabeth Warren can get Medicare for All passed if she's president, but it's important, I think, that she puts that stake in the ground and says, as a value that we're trying to achieve, making sure that everybody has health insurance is the goal. And, you know, it may be the case that we never get there, but if that's the position that we're starting with, I think we're much more likely to end with something positive. I think the realities of politics is that um, it's, it is, and this is probably the reality of any negotiation, you really ought not start with your best offer. Mm. you got to have room to move. And I think, you know, there's a lot that we can learn about the kind of president someone's going to be by the kind of ideas they're putting forward and the kind of goals that they want to set in the horizon for us to achieve. Um, So I think it does matter. I do. Um, I think we need to be realistic about what's possible. I think that there's always a risk that if somebody wins having promised things that they can't deliver because of the structural nature of our democracy, um, that there will be backlash. But at the same time, I think um, it's your job to manage that backlash. It's your job to harness that energy to try to drive more people to the polls next time so you can get a few more senators so that maybe the next time you can move the needle. Um, It doesn't always get you there. You know, when I was working in the White House in uh, 2013, um, the Newtown shootings happened December 14, 2012. And the vice president's office, um, President Obama put the vice president in charge of managing um, the policy response to that process. And so I was in this position where I met with a lot of people who'd been victims of gun violence. I was, you know, writing speeches sort of laying out the policy. I was, you know, there were these moments that were so powerful and, um, you know, and we were making the case that we could pass common sense gun laws. And we knew while making that case that the reality was we didn't have the votes in the Senate. Mm. And even though we had, um, 80% support, sometimes 90% support from the from the American people about things like um, background checks. Uh, we weren't going to be able to move the 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 votes in the Senate, so this was going to fail. And yet, it was so critical that we pushed because before that moment, you know, there had been lots of of deadly shootings during the Obama era before Newtown, and he'd given these wonderful eulogies about it, but. But the idea that we could put gun control on the table, um, the conventional wisdom was that that was not possible. that if you did that, you would lose. And we put it on the table. We made it central to the democratic platform. and if if some if a Democrat wins in 2020 and we have control of both houses of Congress, we are going to pass gun control. Probably in the first hundred days, we're going to get. Sensible background checks and maybe a ban on assault weapons, uh, maybe a ban on high capacity magazines. That is only possible in the year 2021 because of the work that Barack Obama and Joe Biden did in 2013 when they failed. And that's the nature of politics. You have to push on these things knowing that it's a long, hard fight.
1: I think that's so, that's so right. And it doesn't appeal to our we want everything now, society and nature, but you know, it, it it's like when anyone ever, you know, is critical of Obamacare and, and obviously, you know, there are some people who feel very compelled with their, their criticisms, but I always want to say like, hold on a second, like 40 million people have healthcare now that didn't, and it was instituted over the last decade and it's not perfect. Like, is that the big surprise that it's Kind of fucked up, but it's kind of working. And maybe if we can keep it there over the next thirty years, we'll get it perfect. Like that's what kills me is this idea of like, no, if you're gonna do it, it's got to be perfect. Out of the gate.
2: Yeah, it's a very. I think it's a very tough reality. And you know, even with um, tech companies, um, we have the idea of, of of a beta mode. You know, we have this notion that it's okay to put out a product, a new piece of software that's going to be buggy and over time it'll get better. We've accepted that that's part of the process of adopting new tech. Yes. Um, But it's very difficult to accept that from a political perspective. And I don't expect voters to um, necessarily take the long view. If your healthcare is a problem, then my telling you about how great the Affordable Care Act is, is sort of meaningless. Like if it's not great for you, it's a problem. Yes. But I think if, when I think about the work that we did um, in the Obama era, and I think about the Affordable Care Act, and I think about the fact that 20 million more people have health insurance, that's good enough for me to say that's an extraordinary victory. Mm. It's not perfect. No victory ever will be in our system. Um, but it's, you know, probably the biggest policy victory Democrats have had since the 1960s. And so, I'll take it.
1: So, during your tenure at at the White House, what do you think was your most definitive or your most important speech? Uh,
2: You know, in 2012, uh, I worked with the vice president on his convention speech uh, that he gave at the Democratic Convention. And... um, that speech was uh, basically a thirty-minute-long introduction uh, to President Obama. President mm-hmm. Obama came on after, and um, this was a critical juncture in the campaign. The, the The polls all had Mitt Romney and Obama neck and neck. There were some polls that had Obama up two, and some that had Romney up one, and it was it looked very close. And you know, we felt uh, that there was this opportunity with that speech. Um, to really give the perspective of what the Obama presidency has looked like from the person standing closest to Obama the whole time. And, you know, Joe Biden really did have insights into how Obama executed the job of president. And, you know, we thought that was really important to share and also a really great opportunity because. There's so much about running for president that is just fundamentally different than the actual job of being president. And that's just the nature of things. You know, as a president, you very rarely are debating other <laughs> other candidates on a stage unless you're running for election. Right. Um, that debating skill is not nearly as important as how well of a process you run to get to a big decision.
1: It's like auditioning for me. <laughs> I totally get it. It is. It's a different skill.
2: Totally, right? Yeah. Um, and so – I, I think that there's a degree to which you can, with a speech like that, you can give people an insight into what the job really looks like and why this person is uniquely suited for it. Um, so that speech, that meant a lot to me um, to write with him. Uh, 42 million people saw it, uh, which, you know, I will – I'll have carved into my gravestone one day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and so that, that, was a, that was definitely by far my um, – the speech I'm the most proud of.
1: You getting choked up? in the back <laughs> during it <laughs> at all?
2: I, I was so terrified while it was going on, but there's just nothing better in the world than, you know, you've written an applause line into a speech and when it's delivered, a huge convention of people starts screaming and cheering and standing up and waving their signs. Like there's just no better high if you're a speech writer.
1: That's so interesting because you write the speech and to you – in your mind, going over it, you're like, this is the best version of this that that we came up with. Like, I think this is a speech to give. So what are those? Is it the applause line, getting the applause at the perfect moment? Like, what are those moments of validation when you're like, it was good? Like, we got it. This was the one.
2: That's a it's a really good question. Um, I think it it depends on who I'm writing for. Uh, and one of the things about writing for someone like vice president Biden is that you don't have to work hard to get the audience's attention. They are paying attention. They are there for it. Mm. Um, A lot of times I write for people um, who, you know, are, you know, it's an important CEO or the head of a foundation and they're giving a speech at a major conference. And the reality is they're going to walk onto that stage and Uh, the audience doesn't know who they are and also just doesn't know if it's worth listening to. The phone in their pocket is buzzing. They could be strolling through Twitter. And so you have this very limited moment in time, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds to capture the audience enough for them to say, you know what, maybe I will listen to this. Mm. And for me, uh, you know, with uh, rare exceptions for those kinds of speeches, um, the key is humor up front. Um, you know, if you walk onto a stage to give a speech, they're going to applaud because they're being polite and the applause doesn't mean anything. They're just being polite. Sure. And when you start talking, you might see people in the audience who are nodding their head while you're talking. And again, doesn't mean anything. They could just be polite. Yeah. They're just but if you pleasing. make them laugh, that's an involuntary reaction. That's how you know you've got them. And that's how they feel that you've got them. It creates this emotional connection right off the bat that makes them feel like, okay, I like this person. Maybe I'll give it a little longer of a listen. So that's always for me with, with I would say with most speeches I'm writing, that, that's the thing is like, does the opening joke work? Did I get them to laugh? Because by the way, the flip side is if you open with a joke and it doesn't work, it's over. Death. It's just death. Like it's the worst. That's just pull the phone out, scroll through Twitter. Hopefully, you won't have to listen to the speech for much longer.
1: But that's So, uh, did you ever get? Do you ever get help with the jokes?
2: Yeah, you know when. Um. So there, the the president. Uh, well, President Trump doesn't do it, but but previous presidents would uh, speak at the White House Correspondents' Center every year and give a comedy speech, and uh, the people in the white house who would run that process would bring in lots of outside writers to submit jokes. Um, you know, I try to get like 200 jokes to call, you know, 10 or 15 out of, uh, you know, Judd Apatow contributed a number of jokes to, to Barack Obama. So there is, there is that way in for sure. I once got one joke in there. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's always that process that, that, that you could get in there and, and, uh, and spread your humor.
1: There's a couple ringers. So what do you, so this might sound overly simple, but how do you find, I mean, you've written from for from people as different as Kamala Harris to, you know, the vice president. How do you find their voice when writing for someone?
2: Uh, there's a couple of things. One is that um, the first thing you want to try to do is capture how they think, not necessarily how they speak. Um, what is it that animates them? What, what are their values? Um, what is it they're trying to get across? And make sure you've got that down. Um, and then it's a function of spending time with them. Um, I am often interviewing the people that I'm writing for uh, over a period of days, weeks, months – Um, and you get better over time at capturing the voice. It's honestly, I think it's a lot like acting. I am not capable of acting, but in my head, I'm a really good actor. Mm -hmm. You know, like at some point I sit down in front of my computer and I pretend I'm them and I try to channel their voice in my head. And I'm using the same kinds of things I think an actor would use. And you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but these like little clues and small details that sort of round out the character and give you something to grab onto that's greater than just the words that you're putting on the page. Um, the other thing I would say is that there's probably only five or six voices that you can write in as it happens. You know, I think there's, you know, do you, is it supposed to be humorous and conversational? Is it supposed to be statesmanlike and regal? Is it supposed to be thoughtful yet restrained? You know, there's certain. There's certain buckets that people naturally fall into. You know, there's the Pete Buttigieg voice, which is like how most CEOs want to sound, you know, which is very different than, say, the Kamala Harris voice, which I think has got a lot of richness and depth to it that really makes it engaging and stand out. And so you just, you need to study it. You really need to understand it and try to have it flow through you. The other thing is that it is incredibly rare for me to hand somebody a speech, uh, a first draft, and for that to be the end of it. Um, usually that's the beginning of the process. And so over time, as they're making edits, as I'm incorporating their feedback, um, I'm capturing more and more of their voice in the way they want to sound.
1: Can you help yourself by being critical of all speeches all the time? I'm going to tell myself here, I'm critical of eulogies. If you go on too long at a eulogy, I'm like, listen, the, the guy is dead. We, it's time to go. Like no need to suffer more, my friend, right?
2: I, you know, it's, uh, eulogies are are not the one that I get frustrated with because (laughs) I feel like, you know, if you've got to emote, emote, you know, it's wedding toasts that I really struggle with. The worst. They're often the worst. And I just feel like if I could give a few pointers to folks before they give that speech, I can fix it. Um,
1: Give for the, for the wonderful listeners and the curious, here's your public service. <laughs> you're back. You're helping, you're helping the sad people of the world. Give a couple, I've got a couple ideas about toasts too.
2: Look, I think the most important thing to remember about a wedding toast is that it's not about you. Yes. And I think that can be hard for people because obviously part of what you're doing in the toasts. And I recommend, look, when you're going to open a toast and you want to capture the attention of the audience, it's great to start with a story about how you know the bride or groom um, and, you know, a funny story from back in the day. But much like the other kinds of speech I'm talking about, the goal of that humor is not to make them think that you're the greatest. The goal of that humor is to make them think that the bride and groom are the greatest. You have to remember who you're targeting um, this emotion toward. It isn't about you,
1: yeah, you know what kills me. Even sometimes someone will have a good speech, but they're like the best man or they're a friend of the the bride or the groom. And they will not talk about the other person getting married. They'll be like, Dylan was the best. I grew up with him for the last you know fifteen years. God, I love this guy and, and goes waxes on for about eight minutes and then goes, And Don is great, too. Thank you. Best of luck.
2: I I, I totally agree. I think the way to think about a wedding speech is that, and most speeches follow this pattern. You get their attention. You lay out the problem. You lay out the solution. You lay out the vision. And then you give a call to action. Okay, so from a perspective of a wedding toast, the attention you're trying to get is some funny or sweet story about that relationship. And let's say you've got a long relationship with the groom and you don't know the bride that well. Fine. It's about the groom. What's the problem? The problem is that they haven't found each other yet. What's the solution? Well, you're standing in the middle of it. The solution is the wedding. They have found each other. What's the vision? It's what their life is going to look like now that they have found each other. And what's the call to action? Raise our glasses. And that's it. Just do that every time. Oh my! Did you learn that at Columbia or at Harvard? (laughs) That is good. That's good. That's about it. It's that simple.
1: God, people need to learn this.
2: The whole notion at a wedding is that this person was not fully complete until they met their partner. So tell that story about how wonderful they are and yet what was missing that has been found.
1: You know, uh, the ability to give a a good speech and just like these small sort of the the breakdown that you just gave, this is important for everyone to know. Unless you're like so painfully introverted that you just run away from a speech at every turn, everyone, whether you're like a manager at a Target or you're just like the father of the bride giving a speech, should be equipped with some of this knowledge
2: yeah i i think I think that that would be useful
1: i yeah i just yeah the 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 wedding speeches those are really interesting. What about a speech kills you and is it are there like little ticks or there uh, the other day I was watching a speech and and granted the kid was young and he was nervous, and he just went into this pattern of saying, You know every five words, and I just was like, oh kid, like you're dying, you're dying up here'
2: It's. I mean, it's tough. People are usually at their most nervous point when they're giving the speech. Mm. And a lot of those kinds of ticks will come out. And you're rarely aware of them. I mean, for all I know, when I listen to this podcast later when it's posted, I will have said, um, and like, and you know, a million times. I, I don't – you're not really focused on it, right? Yes. So, that's certainly a problem. Um, and that's something that you just get used to with practice and also with preparation, I think you really want to know where you're going with the speech. Ideally you've got it written out and you've tried to memorize it as closely as possible. Yeah. To me, the biggest thing about speeches is that they are almost all too long. Nobody wants to listen to anybody for that long. You know, there, if you're, I, I tend to tell people a 20 minute speech max, unless it is an extremely important person giving an extremely important talk. You know, I think a president, a vice president, they're allowed to give a longer um, speech, but at the end of the day, What is a speech? You are trying to convince people to do something. You are trying to persuade them. You're trying to convince them. And so why make it so that they're going to tune out? You know, sometimes you see somebody give a 55-minute speech. It's like, don't forget that when you were in high school, that's how long math class was. Remember how miserable it was to make it through math class? Like 55 minutes, that is a long time to ask people to sit quietly and give focus attention. Shorter is much, much better.
1: Okay, I got to ask you this, because the nominees, they all do this. They all, uh, you, they'll get a pretty direct question. What's your thought on XYZ? And they go, you know, my father was a coal miner. And I go, oh, enough with your father and the coal mining. He's asking you about education. <laughs> it's like, they all feel they need to qualify like this long legacy. And it's like, I believe you. I'm sure you come from salt to the earth people, but I really, you know, he, your father's dead. You're not going to ask him for advice. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think there's a lot of stuff that can be annoying that actually matters. Mm. They're not doing that because they really just – think that that's maybe the best possible answer to an education (laughs) question. They're doing it because a lot of voters don't vote on ideology. They don't vote on policy. They're voting on the person and the character, and they're looking for ways that they can see themselves in the person. And I just think there's just a lot of stuff that can be very frustrating when you're watching politicians that is grounded in purpose. Now, granted, it's very possible that that stuff starts to backfire. You know, I think there's a lot of politicians. I think of, of um, you know, John Edwards, for example, from back in 2004, he used to talk about his his father, who I I can't even believe I'm forgetting this. He said it so much. I think worked at a paper mill. Mm. And it was like every answer he ever gave started that way. And it made him seem phony. And obviously authenticity is the most important thing that you can exude as a politician these days in particular. Uh, and so you want to try to avoid uh, avoid that. Um, but look, you know, I think you know, Elizabeth Warren is an interesting example. When she's asked about um, what she would do as commander-in-chief, she opens that answer talking about the role of commander-in-chief, talking about her experience on the Armed Service Com- Committee, all this work that she's done with uh, the military, with our intelligence communities to sort of lay out the credentials. But then she pivots to talk about how all of her brothers served in the military. And she's not doing that to convince you that therefore she ought to be a commander in chief. She's doing that because there are a lot of people in this country who serve in the military or have family members who serve in the military who are living a very specific experience that she understands and relates to. And at the end of the day, like that could help Hmm. with a lot of people to see that, oh, she has that perspective. Oh, when when she's considering sending my son or daughter into harm's way, she's bringing a perspective of knowing what it is to have family members serving abroad. Um, and so that stuff I think can be very relevant if done the right way. Doesn't mean it's not always annoying, but it can be important.
1: <laughs> I I found it really interesting when we went out to dinner with, with you, uh, you and, and Liz and I the other week, and, you know, you both – had these incredible careers, you know, these, these careers in government, and then you went on to, you know, now you guys are, are crushing it and, you know, making a good paycheck and, and working, you know, in the private sector. And in theory, you would think that, you know, you've sort of graduated on to the next thing. And then sort of the idea of ever going back to the white house came up and you both had the same reaction, which was kind of, God, I miss it.
2: It is so, hard not to miss it. You know, I'm not sure that I, I mean, look, I'm not sure that I will ever be offered the opportunity to go back. Um, if I was, I think it would have to be a very specific opportunity for me to say yes. Mm. Um, but I will never experience anything like it. It's just incredible. You are, I used to have a parking space at the white house, you know, like you walk every day into the white house and it's your office and it's there's something so heady about that you feel like you are doing something so important even if you are as i was a relatively small cog in a relatively large system you just feel like you are part of something big and important and that your 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 daily life means something that matters you know i one of these things that i that i miss about the white house is that when there was breaking news it meant i had to go to work mm. often that whatever was happening in the country or around the world was relevant to me because it was part of my job. Um, That's so heady and lofty. And, you know, I think it's, I don't know anyone who went into politics who didn't go there with a sense of idealism and the belief that if you can work at that level and you can do the hard work that you can make a difference for people. And I think, you know, my experience was that we did make a difference for a lot of people. And it's not to say that you can't do big, important, meaningful things in the private sector. Um, But in comparison, I can't, you know, like I, I think it's important the, the, the speeches that I'm writing for people now, but it's not the same. Yeah. You know, I'm not moving markets. I'm not, um, I'm not make. I'm not in there making these these executive decisions inside a company about about whether to spend on solar or wind. Like that's not the role. The role is again to articulate their ideas in the form of a speech. Um, you know, oftentimes those speeches are given essentially into the ether. You know, the room that it's being given to is important, but the lift beyond the room um, is low. And so, yeah, it's just hard not to um, fantasize about. One day finding myself in a position again where um, my daily work could actually move the needle and make a difference. Um, And, you know, I don't know anyone in the White House um, who worked in the White House um, with me uh, who doesn't feel that way. I remember uh, I I met somebody who um, had worked in the Clinton White House. And when she was done in the Clinton White House, she took a job with um, Steve Case, who at the time was the. Chairman and CEO of America Online, and her response to the situation when asked how is life on the outside was, it's good, but you know I used to work for the president of America, and I work for the president (laughs) of America Online, and it's just different.
1: Yes, well, I remember when President Obama was interviewed by Letterman, and he said, you know, so I I I leave the White House and I'm I'm finished being president and. Got an agent, I think, who was handling this book stuff and said, you know, we got to do this, this, and this. And we've got these five meetings. We got to all set it up. It's got to happen right now. And he goes, great. Should we set it up for tomorrow? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. This will be in about three weeks. (laughs) 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 And, you know, for President Obama, he's like, oh, right now for me means like now or like latest tomorrow morning.
2: I, I remember when I when I first left uh, the White House, I went um, to a speech writing firm, Western Writers, uh, and worked there for a number of years. And my first day back, they came to me and said, we have a speech on a really tight turnaround. Do you think you could get it done? And I said, sure, what's the deadline? And they said, we need it in 10 days. And I just started laughing because <laughs> in my previous gig, an urgent speech meant we need it in like the next hour. And so, yeah, there's definitely a change of the level of pace that is extremely welcome when you first leave.
1: But to your point, and I keep thinking about this, how you said, you know, uh, Biden was great at sort of shrugging, shrugging it off. You know, he'd sort of leave it there on the stage. Good speech. Okay. Speech. Is that, that to me, seems like a quality in all people at when you're talking about people at that senior level with jobs as as big as that it's like an ability in which to run with blinders on to almost be unaffected by like the trappings or things the neuroses the day-to-day bs that i fall victim to all the time it's like this weird higher calling but there's not a single ceo or impressive person or whomever that that seems doesn't have that ability to just it's very much like that singleness of purpose.
2: Yeah, I mean look, I think that that very well may be true for the 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 leader, the principal leader themselves, whether it's, you know, the vice president, the president, the CEO of a company. Um, in my experience, it's not the case with the senior people around them necessarily. I mean, obviously to look to some extent that needs to be part of your life because that's how the work goes. There are a million things that need to be done and the crisis needs to be put to bed that day and so that you can move on. Um, But the White House is an incredibly human place. It is filled with people who are doing their level best to work really hard in the same way that you find them in any other organization. And they bring to that job all of themselves including the messy parts. You know, there's there's it's a lot easier for example for me to talk today about losing the fight for gun safety legislation um uh, in 2013 uh than it was for me in 2013. I mean, part of the reason that I ultimately left the White House was I felt like I didn't have the the constitution for it mm. to fight that hard and lose so badly. You know, there was this moment in um During that process with Newtown, where we were in the vice president's office, maybe five or six of us working on uh, a major speech, and it turned out that Gabby Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly, were in in the building, and they were going to come by and stop by. And they came in, and they sat down with us. And Joe Biden said to them, these people in the room, these are the ones who are going to fix this for you. Jeez. And it was so amazing, except that we didn't. And that really— Sat with me, and you know there was a lot that we did in the Obama era that was about um, getting caught trying, you know, working really hard on ideas and issues that we knew couldn't pass because of uh, you know our lack of control of Congress, and uh, it was I I wasn't as built for it as I wanted to be. Um, it felt a lot of times like we were spinning our wheels, and it felt a lot of times like um, the way to get motivated and excited about these things was to believe that we could win. I mean, even though I knew the odds that we faced in the Senate with the gun safety stuff, I thought we were going to win. I thought we were going to convince them. And it was crushing when we didn't. Um, you know, and I don't know the number of mass shootings that have happened since then, but it's, you know, in the many thousands. Um, and that was, you know, that that really sat with me. So I think um, that is probably true for a lot of folks in there. It is it is um it is hard work.
1: So is there ever a moment late night you get done at the White House? You know, you go to a bar on K Street, I don't know what your thing was, <laughs> 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 and and you meet, you know, a nice person and you guys are sharing a drink. Is there ever a thought in the back of your head where you go, Are you a Russian operative? <laughs> like, are you a spy? Uh, you are know, you know trying to entrap me. <laughs>
2: I probably should have been thinking that way. I mean, they definitely, when they, when you start at the white house, you get a security briefing and they tell you that there are more spies per capita in Washington than anywhere else in the country. Um, and certainly I think in the post 2016 era, that feels much more real and present. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it just, it never occurs to you. You never think about it. Um,
1: I love your story. You don't have to tell it if you don't want, but I love the story you told about the Secret Service and how you were either part of a motorcade or some version of that. And sort of the lovely Secret Service agent told you rather bluntly, like, listen, if shit goes th- south and God forbid we got attacked, like, we're not worried about you.
2: <laughs> You're on your own. That was basically the exact message. We, you know, we would travel in these 20 car motorcades and. Uh, you know the staff would be in this we, what we call the staff van in the back. These are fifteen person vans, and um, yeah, I was having a conversation with the the head of the of Joe Biden's detail about um, protocols and those kinds of things, and he told me that you know if if the motorcade were to be under attack, there's a piece of the motorcade that breaks off to protect um, the vice president. That most of the agents. Um, there, there is a counter assault team that travels that, that, that fires back. But most of the goal is to get the, the principal out of there safely. Hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, when, when, you know, if the motorcade is under attack, the goal is to get the president or the vice president out there. It's like, if the speechwriter goes, that's just how it goes. Jeez. Um, Yeah. Now, granted, like you feel so safe with these guys, the bubble that they build around the principal is incredible. I mean, You know, you're you're on your way to an event and you're gonna drive over a bridge and you know that there were already divers in the water checking to make sure there weren't any bombs attached to the bridge. And oh, there's a Coast Guard boat in the water with a gun, like there's the level of security, the level of work they're doing as they pass through every jurisdiction, they're assigning the closest hospital over and over again. Like there's just, there is a process to it that makes you feel very secure.
1: And so when you're there, so you were there on election night, 2012?
2: I was, yes.
1: What's that feeling
2: like? What's the energy like? That was the most incredible night. It was just fantastic. We were all at a hotel in Chicago and uh, you know I I thought we were gonna win. I think we all felt pretty good about it. Um, and you know and we won by quite a few electoral votes uh, but you know a lot of the states we won we won by a point or two you know it, it, much like 2016 it could have surprisingly gone the other way uh, but it's just utter elation
1: And what I mean are you guys I, I, I think I asked, David Pluff this, and, and he said, we are getting our information from the same people that you are. You know, we're getting it from CNN, and we're getting uh, – do you guys have an inner source?
2: No, I mean, that's, that's, that's how we get it all. I mean, I think Twitter became so valuable um, during my period working in the White House, um, in part because if you just followed all the political journalists, you could get the news before they wrote out the full story. Um, but yeah there's not like a CIA operative who's like secretly doing all of the election tallying and giving you a secret report like you're getting it in the same way now I mean there are you are you have delegate counters in during the primary you've got vote counters in the um in the general who have a lot of knowledge about vote tallies as they come in who've got their own computer system that they're running the data through so there are times in campaigns where um, you know the Associated Press like For example, when Kamala Harris ran for attorney general in in California, uh, I believe it was the San Francisco Chronicle called the race for her opponent. But her chief strategist was running the numbers as they were coming in through his program and felt like actually this thing is closer than I, th- I think they've called it too early. And lo and behold, three weeks later, after they'd counted all the votes, um Kamala was uh was named the victor um after her opponent had already declared victory. So so there's some of that, but for the most part, yeah, you're just getting it that way. I remember I was sitting in a uh in a meeting with uh with the vice president and some others. Um, Actually, Brad Paisley of all people was in the meeting. Country star Brad Paisley? country star himself. We were doing some stuff around common sense gun safety legislation and um, which Brad supports and, and Brad has obviously an audience of people who are Love strong Second Amendment believers. And so this was like a potentially great opportunity for him to talk to his audience about why the things we were doing weren't about taking their guns away. Um, and in the middle of that meeting, um, I check Twitter and there are reports that a bomb has gone off at the Boston Marathon. And I got up and I walked over to the chief of staff and I showed it to him, and then he made a call and like that's how the vice president learned about that because I saw it on Twitter in that moment. Um,
1: Had Brad Paisley take
2: it? Uh, well, we were we didn't raise it in the in the meeting, so right. I think he was okay.
1: <laughs> well, so uh, a moment like that, or or we, you talked about Newtown. What is how quickly does the environment change? Is it in an instant as soon as that news hits? Like we are now on a different course for the day, all hands on deck?
2: I think it depends on the circumstance. You know, I think in a case like that, it is probably the case that um, the vice president's schedule was cleared and replaced with briefings, with, um, you know, the national security advisor, with the you know head of counterterrorism, with those kinds of folks to get the information as it comes. Um, oftentimes, though, uh, the whatever meeting you're in can be finished um and so you know there's i think you have this sort of you may have this vision in 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 a, in a movie where something happens and suddenly like the secret service is rushing in right. um that kind of thing will only happen if there's a threat to the white house itself you know the vice president and the president are not going to be picked up by the secret service and taken down to the bunker unless there's some credible reason to believe that they're under threat
1: did that happen while you were there? Like a Not lockdown? Not while I was there. Jeez, I I would just like to be. I just want to be part of it once, like in the in the melee. Like maybe I get down to the bunker with everyone. I'm like checking out the MREs or like all. I'm like, God, so much water down here. Like you guys are really prepared.
2: It's the little things that are so wild. Like I remember, uh, I was <laughs> I was sitting on Air Force Two, um, and there was a conference. Uh, there was a a, a a telephone on the on the table, and I look at the speed dial. And, like The names in the speed dial are like the Situation Room, Hillary Clinton, Chief of Staff's Office, National Security Council. It's like, all right, that's an impressive speed dial. You know, it's like those kinds of things are like, wow, where am I? Like, I could just pick up this phone and dial Hillary Clinton right now.
1: <laughs> but I, I also think the president and the vice president have like a um, – You know, what's it called when they give older people, um, you know, if the I've fallen and I can't get – like Oh, like a panic button? Yeah, like they've got a panic button on them. I've heard that. Or maybe I've watched too many Nat Geo documentaries.
2: I'm not aware. (laughs) It seems certainly impossible. I think my suspicion is that in reality, if the principal is the one who's got to alert people to a panic situation, the Secret Service has probably already fallen down on the job. You know, they should see it before – you know the whole point is that they're there <laughs> so that you don't have to be looking over your shoulder every time right. that you go outside. If you're the president,
1: um, so I think like you know my one of my last questions is is again because I I feel like the ability in which to convey a speech and to put a speech together is so important for any line of work. So it's like, if you could give one piece of advice to someone who's getting their speech together, is it make it shorter? Is it?
2: I think the best piece of advice I could give is that you already know how to do this. You just don't think that you do. Mm. I meet people all the time who are perfectly well-spoken, who when they sit in front of a blank page and have to type, suddenly can't speak English. And there's this disconnect, I think, between being conversational in the normal course of things and being a speechwriter or, you know, or writing anything. And the truth is you are trying to be conversational. And so a a tip that I'm often giving to writers who get stuck with writer's block around this stuff is stop trying to write it and just say it. I often think the best way to write a first draft of something is write it like it's an email to a friend. Stop worrying about how good it sounds. Stop worrying about whether you've made every phrase perfect. Just explain it. And once you've got that, then you've got something to edit. I think it's much easier if you've put together, I hate staring at a blank page. I think on my first round through, I just I I call it a vomit dump. I just dump everything I can onto the page because I want that piece of granite that I can then carve the statue out of. That is so much easier than than starting with a blank page. And so just say it, you know, record yourself and then listen back to it and type it out. Um, But at the end of the day, you are trying to convince somebody of something, you are trying to explain something to them.
1: Talk to them like they were right there and it's not a big speech and you'll be okay. I think that's great. And I think, you know, you're a professional and you're funny. And so the idea of using comedy at the beginning is so good. And I also want to warn people, you might not be funny and that's okay. Like some people feel so compelled. They're like, wait till they hear this zinger. I got loaded up, ready to go. And it's like, bro, maybe just try to be sweet and honest and people will appreciate Yeah.
2: And I always tell people, you know, if you're going to do a joke, do it in front of somebody else. And if they don't laugh, do not do it. Practice <laughs> that thing beforehand. I think if you're not going to do a joke, what you want to try to replace it with is finding a way to connect emotionally with the audience early on. I use a joke as a proxy because it is a really easy, quick, sort of cheap way to connect with the audience. And it sends these messages to both the audience and you that you've connected.
1: Yeah.
2: But you can start a speech by You know, let's say you're giving a speech about climate change, like you may want to start the speech by scaring the hell out of the audience. That creates an emotional connection. Whatever it is, you just want to make sure that they are feeling it and not just thinking about it cerebrally when you talk about it.
1: You know, I loved Nancy Pelosi was on Bill Maher and she said, I think Bill Maher made the point and she echoed it, which was like, we can can hate their politics, but we can't hate the people. Like we have to get over this idea of like, if I don't agree with you, I'm unfriending you on Facebook. And I would imagine when you work as close as you did in, in the government, it, it would make you less idyllic to a certain extent, like because you're forced every day to sort of have that inner workings, perhaps with people whose politics you don't share, that it really levels the playing field.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I think I'm probably not the best messenger on this particular issue because um, to me, there are sort of two categories of people that I um, have political disagreements with. Um, There's a category of people who I feel like just um, because of the nature of our um, media apparatus because of their busy lives, because they are not as obsessively focused as I am on politics, because they watch Fox News, um, they don't know that they're being fed things that are not accurate. Mm. They don't know that the opinions that they're building around these ideas are based on facts that are not actual facts. And so I have a lot of um, empathy for that and am eager in those cases to try to, to bridge the divide um but there are a lot of people in this country who voted for president trump because they hate black people and i don't have any sympathy for them at all Mm. and i never will i'm not trying to convince them of anything at all yeah and that's just sort of how i feel about it like there there are just if you have paid attention to what is going on in this country if you have watched um children be put in cages at the border, for example. Um, and it doesn't bother you because you got a tax cut. Like, I don't want to be your friend. I just don't. Yeah. And I totally get that there are problems with that kind of position in terms of, you know, building a more united community, but I'm willing to be the one on the edge being like, listen, you know, you voted for a racist and now he's doing racist things and I hold you accountable for it because I do.
1: It, it's interesting, you know, Andrew Yang said something to the effect of if if you listen to cable news, you would think that Trump winning in 2016 was a direct result of emails and Hillary and Russia and like a litany of like the hot take buzzwords that we've heard over and over the last few years. He's like, I would say it's because, you know, 30,000 jobs were lost in Iowa. Like that 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 there's a piece of it but that it was also because there were these glaring things that we were not, um, that just we weren't solving at, at a time like that. He talked about Iowa. He talked about, you know, that that we're losing jobs at a record pace and Amazon still doesn't pay taxes and that's fucked up on both sides. So we're not finding a way in which to pivot with, you know, the world in which we live in now. So do you think there's there's a part of that as well?
2: There have been um, a number of studies that have been done uh, about the 2016 election in the aftermath, um, because this idea that um, Trump won in large part because of economic anxiety has been fairly pervasive. And the question is, is that accurate or not? Mm. And pretty much all of the research says that it's not. Um, And, you know, look, I think as a sort of crude um, example of why that might not be the case, uh, there are plenty of rich people in this country who voted for Trump. And it wasn't necessarily economic anxiety that led them there. Now, I do think that um, the hollowing out of the middle class over the last 50 years has created a sense of desperation in this country. There's no question about that. I also happen to believe that, and and the data bears this out, these are just facts, that it's Republican policies and Republican officeholders who have done that. Um, I think that has led to an environment where there's an opportunity for someone like Trump or other ethno-nationalists around the world to come in and say, the reason for your economic anxiety is the brown people on the border. They're the problem. And that is, I think, what, certainly what the research shows and, and what I believe is much more uh, the function of what we saw Happen, And I think the scary thing when you look around the world is that it's happening everywhere and that it will likely continue. I mean, one of the things that climate change is going to do is create more refugees than we can count. Um, And we've already seen what's happened in Europe. uh, The Syrian refugee crisis leads to um, European governments letting refugees in leads to this sort of fascist backlash that leads to ethno-nationalists. Winning in critical races and taking over um, the the mechanisms of power, we we see it in in Israel, where the, where a crisis on the border that has been obviously protracted for a very long time has turned a country more right wing, um, and has um, you know increased the willingness among um, the populace to take some pretty awful positions on things, and we certainly see it here in the United States, all of this is going to get worse when suddenly people run out of water at a, in, a, in one country and need to become refugees and, and head to another. Um, and I think it's, it's probably the, the, the greatest issue that we will face over the coming generations um, is the ways in which um, this kind of authoritarianism is deeply connected to what is going to happen with climate change. So it's something we've got to prepare for. We've got to think through and we've got to have a better solution to it than we have right now.
1: You ever thought about running?
2: I, you know, when I was a kid, I thought about doing it a lot. But raising money is the most miserable thing that there is. And I just can't bring myself to do it.
1: My niece is trying to make money for her Girl Scout troop and it's like pulling teeth over there. (laughs) I'm like, buy some Thin Mints, you piece of shit. Like I'm sending out mass emails (laughs) to my friends. I'm like, Leah needs you to buy some Samoas so her, you know, Girl Scout troop can go on a field trip. I don't know what to do with the money. And the
2: funny thing is like in that circumstance, it's easier because you are asking people to give money to help her. (laughs) But when you're asking people to give money to help you and you have money, it just feels awful. And it takes so much time. This, I worked in a congressional campaign in 2008 and the candidate had to spend 40 hours a week on the phone asking people for money. And you get your friends to give you money and then they give you money. And then a month later, you call them and ask to give more, which is an experience. I've had a number of friends run for Congress. You know, you give them 500 bucks. Two months later, they call you asking for money, more money. And it's like, I know because I worked in politics that they have to do that. But also, I'm annoyed. Like, I just gave you $500. That's not a small amount of money. Like, don't come back to me asking for more.
1: Oh, my God. So, I don't
2: want to be that guy.
1: If you asked me for money and then I came to your campaign headquarters and I saw like too many pens, <laughs> like too many supplies, <laughs> I'd be like, Dylan, you need all these fucking pens? Is this is where my money's going. It's a lot of sharpies. Um, okay, last question I ask everyone on the podcast is what are your one or two commandments, truths that you have discovered? that you'd want to impress upon someone else?
2: Um, that's, a, God, that's a great question. Um, I think my first would be, and this is gonna sound so basic, is to be nice to people. Um, I think that you would be amazed how far you can get in life if you have empathy and compassion and you show it and you actually genuinely feel it. Um, and then the other big thing is um, do favors for people. And, and there's two reasons to do this. There's one that's like very transactional and there's one that's very genuine. Um, the transactional piece of it is that um, it is really helpful if you're trying to move up in the world in whatever field you're in, in particular, like industry towns like Washington or here in Hollywood. Um, it's good to do favors for people because it is good to have people who owe you a favor. Yeah, I used to joke that I learned everything about politics from watching Godfather 2. Because like, how does Vito Corleone become the Godfather? He's just like this poor guy living in this Italian neighborhood. How does he become it? He starts doing favors for everybody, you know, and suddenly he's the guy you can go to. He will solve a problem for you. And then when he needs a favor, you're happy to oblige. So I think that's like one of the most important things, just from a pure transactional perspective. And then from like a deeper sort of psychic perspective. Um, Doing favors for people is a really good thing to do. It will make you feel good. It will build deeper connections. And one of the favors that I have done for a number of people is help them find a job. And there's just nothing better than that. I mean, you want to feel like you've made a difference in someone's life? Put them in touch with somebody who is looking for, who has an opening and thinks that they're the right person for the role. Like that is a life-changing moment for somebody, getting a new job, potentially changing their careers. Like Do that. Yeah, and then on the back end, you've got people who um, who want to help you. You know, it's not that they owe you in a way where you're going to come to collect, but they want to help you. They want to be on your team, and that way, you're in a position where you can ask for help. And that's the way I think to to make it uh, really
1: in any industry. Dude, thank you, man. This was great. Thank you. How good was that? Right? Come on. You don't, you don't get you don't get podcasts like that. Where are you listening? Huh? Right. Was that a gift? I thought it was pretty good. Um, dude, thank you to Dylan Lowy for doing the pod. It was such a pleasure. Make sure you check out his new speech writing firm called The Lead Pen at theleadpen.com. All right, that's it. Kevin, anything else? It's been great working with you. <laughs> he's so so sweet even to the end i wish he would just just tell me to fuck myself kevin so you can you can make it easier on me please oh god well i'm not going to tell you where he's going but they're lucky to have him anyway love you guys bye